Hello and welcome to the Modern Maker Podcast. Today is Thursday, January 24th, otherwise known as Beer Can Appreciation Day. So do you guys have a favorite beer can? I guess like the design of it maybe? No. No, I just love a good old normal bush light. (laughs) (laughs) That's the can. You appreciate it. I I appreciate the contents, not so much the packaging. This is sort of a love-hate one, but I think... The fact that Coors Light has stuck with this kind of silver bullet motif way silver past bullet, its like, stylistic expiration date is both like stubborn and admirable. One, I don't <laughs> know anyone that drinks Coors Light, like, but I. It's funny, like I remember those commercials when I was young. Those like really yeah. bad CGI silver bullet trained, and then everyone starts dancing in the snow, and they're still going with that theme, like. <laughs> all these years later like hey it's the silver bullet oh man i think they were going with it way before that because i remember those commercials those were like in the 90s i think but i can remember being a little kid playing soccer so it was probably like late 80s and there being a team called the silver bullets and i remember thinking like oh like the beer oh nice <laughs> so it's been it's been around for a long time yeah it's like if budweiser kept the dog right Wait, what's the dog? The what's the dog behind you, Chris? Oh, Spuds McKenzie. Yeah, <laughs> come on now. <laughs> you've got you've got a Spuds McKenzie uh, really statue in your living room. <laughs> fell on deaf yeah. ears. Anybody that's tried to change up the can game, I'm talking like Michelob Ultra. I'm calling that a failure. It's too dainty. It makes me feel like I have a giant paw for. Oh, our do hands. they make it like a like a Red Bull can or yeah, something? Yeah, pretty similar. I'll tell you what my gotcha. least favorite cans are. They're the aluminum cans that are shaped like bottles. Oh. Those can just, <laughs> just get out. Like, Yeah. Not a fan. No. It's like, I, 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 I actually like cans as a container. I recently discovered cans of wine, and it's kind of amazing because if you don't want to like open a whole bottle, uh, a, a can of wine is like a perfect size for like one person to drink six of. No. Um, <laughs> but... No, I, I think like cans are like a pretty efficient container. I like the way they they stack and and go into shelves. But if it was beer bottle appreciation day, we could talk about Modelo bottles. Yeah, Modelo bottles are where it's at because we've been collecting them. <laughs> You're collecting them? Yeah, I'm going to do a project out of all the Modelo <laughs> okay. bottles that are left over at Maker Ranch. But I thought you were just turning into a no. Hoarder. I think we, we just need to throw like one big barbecue. Uh, when the weather gets a little bit warmer and uh, yeah th- well throw a big bottle get about five ten cases of Modellos and then I can finish the the, the project where all out of this giant pyramid of bottles like, I became an alcoholic to make this project you see what I do yeah. for you people <laughs> I know <laughs> dedicated I know. to the craft all right so what are you guys working on well this week I put out a plywood shelf uh, with copper pipe accents. I chose to solder everything together like you would do if you were plumbing. Uh, so I got a heat torch, one of the map gas ones, which ended up being way hotter than I needed, but still useful because I can always turn down the heat. You can't turn it up past its limit. And then just got a, a, a solder kit and a flux kit and put everything together, heated it up, and welded those joints, which was surprisingly messy once I got everything welded together. The heat really discolors copper pipe, and solder joints tend to be pretty messy, especially when you first start welding or soldering, whatever the word is for it. Uh, maybe the word is even sweating. I hear, pe- I hear people call it sweating copper pipe a lot. Have you guys heard that? I've heard that said before. Yeah. Okay, cool. So I'm just going to keep calling it sweating throughout the podcast. I was sweating a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I was nervous. 
Yeah, so uh, whenever I was first doing it, I, I found that I was using too much heat and I was being way too aggressive with the solder itself. So I was getting this big Shocking. bubble on the bottom of the pipe where, where I was sweating it. But luckily, I had a good file with me. Shout out Ben for buying all those files the other day. And I was able to clean everything up to get that solder joint to where it was just a nice silver line around each of the joints to where it was it was cool being able to see how it was made without it being too overwhelming or too rustic. It was still really clean and contemporary. I was able to use some steel wool to get everything to have this nice luster, like a low-gloss shine. Uh, the project itself wasn't too insane, but it was a couple of new techniques that I tried. Sweating the copper for one, but also using a router to make dado grooves, which, did I mention that on the podcast last week? Yeah, it was an epiphany for you. Exactly. It was a cool game changer, so... You know how on Instagram they do the hashtag slabber day or whatever? I don't know, when they try to do like a slabs on Saturday or something like that? Yeah, you should exactly. start a You should start a solder day one, Mike. Oh, happy solder day, oh, everyone. Yeah, everybody <laughs> post your soldering projects. Don't sweat it. Yeah, yeah. I, I like the way the solder looked. I like how it, you had that little silver ring around the joints on the ones that came out neat. And I don't mind the points where it kind of bubbled up and pooled a little bit. I actually think that gives it a a more handmade kind of feel and aesthetic to it. The other, the other detail I really liked is how you, the end of your copper pipes for the hooks, you cut little wood plugs that you filled into the ends. So it looks like the, yeah, the, it's like, and then sanded them perfectly flush. I thought that, thought that was a, a really nice detail. Thanks. Yeah, it was cool. And the, the solder joints that did have that bubble, I filed them down, but I didn't take them completely away because it didn't happen on every joint. So I just figured... I would clean them up, but not make them completely uniform. Keep that handmade kind of look. So, thank you. I appreciate it. It was fun, and I got it. I integrated a color cord pendant lamp into it, which is really fun. I'm working right now on trying to figure out how to make that type of fabric cloth, and I've got a couple of ideas. So, look forward to some to some cool lighting stuff in the future. You know, Mike, when you were talking right now, I kept thinking that somebody was coming in your room trying to murder you, but now I oh. realize you're looking at the project. <laughs> Yeah, it's on the wall next to my desk. I, You're yeah, that's pretty funny. It. Yeah, exactly. Nice. Ah. <laughs> cool. Well, what are you guys working on, Chris? Uh, uh, w- yeah. What's new in your shop or new on your YouTube channel? I Ooh. guess right. Yeah. So uh, last week I talked about the whole bike thing, and then I never got a chance to post it last week. So that's going to come out this week. So nice. I'm kind of at a place where I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. So I'll just say one of the reasons that, that got delayed is I'm working on a really big project like literally it's 12 feet long um Ooh, is it a conference table of sorts it is not wow <laughs> uh it's a really big basically media cabinet so i'm redoing the room that we're in right now i think i talked about this a little bit that i want to reconfigure it so that i can start doing some more like live stream type stuff and just sort of make a little corner office for myself here i got the corner right. office baby oh uh, nice <laughs> literally i'm in the corner of a room um <laughs> so yeah that that's kind of delayed things that project's gone on i think i've worked on it for like already i don't know nine days probably like it's taken way longer than i expected it's one of those things where and it's like dead simple it's just like so plain looking but making it so plain looking is actually what's hard about it because like i have six doors on it that like i'm trying to get the gaps all nice and even and i want like continuous grain going through the whole thing so it's that 
super minimal simplicity that's making it take forever. But I'll kind of save talking about that for later. Um, I actually have a project that maybe after Ben talks about what he's working on, maybe come back to me because I have a project idea that I'm working out the kinks of. So maybe we can kind of brainstorm some ideas Ooh. for that. Yeah, Sounds let's good. do that. All right. So this week I have, and it should be out by the time this podcast goes live, the concrete coffee table that I made. So we welded up a steel frame and then flush poured in the concrete, and which is a technique I've done before. But this time we, I wanted a a uneven, more like rough surface that was still smooth to the touch, if that makes sense. So I really like uh, the surfaces they have at like Restoration Hardware. I think some of their furniture designs are a little bit overdone and kind of tacky, but I like the way they, they'll, they'll finish wood in a way where it's uneven, so it feels like kind of handmade or weathered, but every part of that, if you run it over, is completely smooth and you'll never get a, a, a splinter. Um, so I used an angle grinder to kind of rough up the surface, but at the same time grinding it smooth. So it's not perfectly flat, but you can still run your hand over it. And then I mixed India ink with water to create sort of a water-based stain, which I let soak into the concrete multiple times until it got this nice black color. And it's good. It's uh, it, it came from an idea of talking to some friends that are food bloggers, and they were talking about the kind of surfaces they like for photographing food on. And they're saying that it's hard to find good dark surfaces because that really makes the color of the, the food pop that aren't too shiny, right? So if you get like black granite or something like that, it'll often be so reflective. And if you're taking overhead shots, you're always seeing the reflection of the camera or the lighting or whatever's on the ceiling in the surface. So it was a fun experiment and came out with like a nice uh, sort of dark gray to, to black modeled textured surface that uh, is non-reflective but still sealed with the paste wax so that was a fun project pretty simple and straightforward and other than that just working on finishing up the house uh, we are doing all the final paint and trim which is really exciting figured out a cool baseboard detail um, which at first I was just going to so I did the flooring in the the container houses and the flooring's easy to, to lay, but the uh, the part where I did the details around the hexagon floor tile, I had to so I had to do the the hexagon floor tile first, and then I had to cut the floorboards around that. So normally, when I'm doing flooring, I would start from a, a straight edge and then work my way off of that. So you have like at least one good reference point uh, starting along a wall, but with that tile there and all those angles I had to start around the tile which oh, means yeah. I had to grow the floor out from the tile which means my edges where it met the walls weren't perfect they were like a slight like one degree off so I had to cut these long skinny triangular pieces of flooring to fit in there needless to say that left some slight gaps between the flooring and the drywall so that's where baseboards come in come in handy but I was looking at all the baseboard options and I was just like they're just making me sad. They're just like so, they're so basic and just stupid. Um, so what I did was is I made a much thicker baseboard, and I put my outlets kind of high. They're about fourteen to, to eighteen inches off the ground. So I basically made like a three inch wide uh, phone charging shelf on mm. one side of it that kind of goes right under it. So I used a two by six. I faced that with a one by six, you know, pre painted white trim board. And then I did a three and a half inch like oak whitewash shelf on top of that. So it's a much more built up detail. It 
is uh, I'm not doing it on all the walls, just on a few where it makes sense relative to like where the bed is. And because the bedrooms are so small, because this is a tiny house, um, this will sort of act as almost like a little mini nightstand where you could set a water bottle, a your phone, because the charger, the, the outlets are right above it. Um, so it was a great way to, to take like a problem of the floorboards not lining up, ignore the generic thing, and only apply like a sort of a, a new solution where it's sort of needed. Because in the living room, the kitchen areas like that, the flooring is flush enough to the drywall that you don't really need baseboards. Because that was the original plan prior to doing the the carved out right. floor, the notched was out just, floor, right? Yeah. So in general, I'm, I'm not a big fan of baseboards. In my Boston place, uh, we, we just didn't use them. And it actually, it's like <laughs> one of the compliments I get. It's like, oh, I love how it feels a little bit like sort of raw edge. Um, there's a thing that you can use called like a J-bead which is like a little piece of aluminum trim that you paint over, which creates a really consistent reveal. Um, Mm. But you have to have your flooring all the way to the edges in order for that to sort of work. So yeah, with the rest of the house, we just did it correct because we weren't going around those had a weird hexagonal pattern. So we were able to just get them nice and straight and not need it. The other cool trick is where there is some of the points, uh, not so much between the tile and the wood flooring, that we just used the grout but the walls to the side of that there was a about an eighth of an inch gap and it was a pretty straight gap between the drywall and the floorboards and i wasn't sure what to do it wasn't quite big enough where i needed a whole baseboard piece of trim but at the same time i it was just a little bit it was catching the eye because that gap was reading as like black because there's a shadow in it and then the rest of the of, of everything else was reading as sort of white because there was grout in between the floorboards and the tile. So I actually just used white grout to fill in that area, and it worked way better than I was than I was hoping. Um, yeah, I just pushed it in with my finger, cleaned off the floorboards because the floorboards are, are have like a really heavy duty pre finish on them, um, so that just resisted the water the same way that the tile would. Just cleaned off the the, the wooden floorboards, and uh, that whole gap is all nice and filled now killer yeah i uh checked out the house yesterday and it is really coming along how many more days do you think you've got left before you would call it a wrap like four or five days i'm still waiting so the final thing is i'm waiting for them to southern california edison uh to hook up electricity but they said that will happen at the very latest that will happen uh the 31st of this month so yeah it will get done this month but then i just have to you know hopefully pass the final inspection awesome and I've gotten the preview of some of the content. I've watched the first video, and I've got to say, it's a banger. It's exciting. It's cool to see. I'm really glad to see all of this wrapping up in a, in a good way. It's uh, it's awesome. So yeah, yeah it's, it's it's looking like it's going to be about a six part series of videos that are about fifteen to twenty minutes long. Yeah, this has been like the podcast chronicles for the past long. For the, how long do you think we've been talking about it on the podcast? Yeah, since we started. About a- yeah, <laughs> well, yeah we, episode three. Yeah, well, we got the Joshua Tree about March. March. Yeah, yeah. So not quite a year, but dude, that's awesome. Yeah, it feels really long, but at the same time, like time flies. Building a house start to finish in a year is like pretty fast. <laughs> totally awesome. So, what is our topic this well, week? We're going to brainstorm oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. with Chris first. Me... Oh, okay. We're going to do that pre-topic. I like it. Pre-topic. All right, so I'll lead into it. All right, Chris, so how can we help you with your with your brainstorming? Okay, so 
long story short, um, Johnny Builds is going to be coming out here in a couple weeks, and we're going to... Oh, that guy. That guy. <laughs> we're going to collaborate on a couple projects. So we were thinking of, you know, what can be a theme to kind of tie the two videos together. And I've always wanted to try the whole, I'm going to say it wrong, so, Shosugi-bon thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, <laughs> I thought, oh, let's, let's mess around with some of those ideas. So we hopped on a call, and we were just like drawing up some ideas, and we came up with a really cool idea for him, and then an idea that I really like, which is doing sort of like a faux beam coffee table. And so I've been thinking of the best way to do the faux beam. So the hard part for me is the end cap of the beam. Like how do you make that look like end grain? So I, I've come up with a few ideas. So, okay, really quickly before you go into it by faux beam coffee table, you mean you want to make a coffee table where the top looks like it's made out of beams. Yeah. They'll just basically be like, Exactly. Okay. Got yeah, it. like man-made hollow beams, I guess. Okay. So, um, so one of the ideas that I heard some, I think Johnny had mentioned that he had heard it somewhere, which seems like the best idea if you were really trying to fool people, but I don't know how important that was, would be to basically get like a cookie slab and cut, since the whole like face of that would be end grain and cut out squares from it to plug it with. Yeah. So that was one idea. Then I thought, well, what if we like, we could kind of like lean into the fact that it's fake. And so you could, um, one idea that I had was to take, to make it a square out of four pieces that were rotated 45 degrees so that the grain would kind of form like a diamond pattern, if that makes sense and plug it with that. Um, another thing is, I guess since like, you know, I'm going to be burning it or whatever to make it kind of black that it's probably going to hide a lot of the detail anyway, but I don't know. It'd be a good, uh, if you guys have any other ideas or even if the, the audience has other ideas, they can DM me. I I think the way you're thinking of it is, is interesting because I would say the minute you go faux with something, uh, in order to the, the the best case scenario of a well-executed faux or fake sort of finish is that you can't tell it from the real thing. Right. Right. And so, like, the mitering in, if you made, like, a box beam mm-hmm. and then mitered in the edges yeah. and then perfectly cut the uh, a piece of an end grain cookie slab, you know, into a square with mitered things so it fits in as, like, a perfect plug. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. The best case scenario with that is it just looks like a beam, which also sort of, like, undermines the amount of work and effort that it took to make that. If it looks like the real thing, people say, oh, he just took some beams, planed them. And use them for the the table, or right. and then burnt them. Also, but on the the plus side of that, because you're going to do a burnt finish, it'll hide any imperfections in that. The other way to go, I think, is saying like, "Well, I don't want to use solid wood because that's wasteful, and that's like something Ben would do for his deck." Um, <laughs> so, how do we take this idea of a box beam or a fake beam and actually lean into that and make that the actual strength of the design idea? Um, and not that. So right away when you're talking about like a burnt finish, a hollow wooden tube is going to burn very differently than a solid one. So that's an idea. You could also take the sort of stack of lumber approach where if you see a bunch of like tightly like a uh, like a like a stack of hardwood, all the end grain lines up. But if that was just compressed and glued together, it would look like a composite thing. If you're burning it, I think if you just did a glue up of all sort of little end grain built up plugs for that box beam and then burnt it, you wouldn't be able to tell tell the difference because the the char is going to be like a sixteenth to an eighth of an inch deep anyways, um, and that would hide all your 
all your seams. But I do like the idea of the sort of, you know, four sort of pyramids going to make like a square tube or or a uh, solid uh, thing. I think that could be really interesting on the end grain or even sort of tapering it so that the, the ends aren't perfectly flat because you're building it up. Uh, it, it all just gives you, and then when it burns, it won't be like a straight burn. Uh, well, the other thing I was thinking is it's funny because like 99.8% of people that would ever, even if you made it where you just like got a piece of face grain and just like threw it on there, most people would never even look and be like, that's a fake beam. Right. Only like if you're into woodworking or, or know a lot about wood, would you even pay attention to that? So what's stopping you from getting like a six by six or an eight by eight post? Is it just the fact that you want to use like maple or walnut or something? I, so I want to use white oak. White oak. Um, okay. Yeah. And which I, I've, uh, I found a place where I can get it shipped in. I think it would still be fairly expensive to ship in, but it's kind of just the like accessibility of it. Yeah. It'd be more accessible to people. Like, I mean, if you didn't want to burn it, you could even like do it out of plywood. Yeah, totally. Because that's what I was thinking immediately was something like that would look really cool if you did it out of the miter fold dado stack to where you could get it, get all but the bottom of the beam out of a single piece of plywood. So it was all a continuous piece of oh, grain yeah. and that would look pretty sweet. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, between you and Ben, what y'all were saying pretty much makes sense to me. I don't know if I have too much to add. Um because the the little bit of shishugi bond that I have done, I found that it does accentuate glue lines a little bit. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's something to take into consideration, but you know the the glue line burns a little more aggressively than the center of the wood. Okay. Um, so if you do kind of stack up a bunch of pieces to create an end grain, I don't know if it's something that would look cool. I don't know if it was something that would look bad, but I do think it would be noticeable to an extent. You know, okay. ooh, that, that actually gives me a good idea. Like I, like I think you could do a really cool tabletop. Like if you did a tabletop where it's all end grain, like a butcher block, but you mixed in some gasoline with your glue to make it a little more flammable, <laughs> so it burns a little faster there. So it almost like engraves like a like a brick like pattern right. in your in your top, and then you sand it and do like an epoxy uh, top or coat over that. Yeah, you you could actually play with like most of the time when people do that finish i see them using like a propane torch and they're trying to burn it as consistently as possible yeah but when you think about like destruction destructive natural forces like fire or erosion what's often really interesting about the forms and shapes and textures that they leave behind is the unevenness of it all yeah it's like the grand canyon is is cool not because it's like a perfect straight trench that was eroded by water because it's this like meandering, wandering, curvy, goes deeper in some places, wider in other places. Um, so the, the the consistent irregularity of it all is what's aesthetically interesting. And think if you're literally playing with fire, like uh, <gasps> trying to experiment with how you burn it uh, and not just uh, treating it like something where like an ink stain could, could do the same thing. Right. Yeah. That's a good point. I would definitely, yeah. That's a great point, and to that point, I would recommend... I think they're called like a weed-burning torch. It's what you would use if you were to use, do like a controlled burn on your property. Um, mm-hmm. But it hooks up to a big... What are the, what size... How many gallons is a propane container that goes under a grill? Is that 30 gallons? No. Five. Five? Okay, five yeah. gallons. Great. Well, I'm glad I didn't say 30 gallons confidently. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a trash can. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, but if, <sighs> it, it, it's the kind that it hooks up to a five-gallon propane tank, and it's it's basically oh here for example, it's what the the boring company, the Elon Musk, not a flamethrower, flamethrowers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what those are made out of. Oh, you should just get one of those flamethrowers, Chris, and burn it with that. Yeah, there you go. Sponsored, <laughs> Elon, if you're listening. Yeah, but that just gives you a lot bigger flame, so it kind of just gives you a little bit. It, it takes away the human element a little bit more because with a small right. torch, there's there's a lot of noticeable discretion where like you really took your time there, but then you kind of yeah. moved along here. Uh, but with that bigger flame, it makes it look a little you're, more natural. You're writing with spray paint instead of a. A pen. Exactly. So, yeah, I would check one out. And they're really cheap. Get it from Harbor Freight if you don't want to spend much money. Which leads us into a really great show topic, Ben. Ooh. Yes, we're going to be talking about value. I think it's like a more important concept than cost. Everyone always talks about how much does it cost, how much does it cost. But the question is, is value. Are you getting value for whatever sort of tools and materials that you're buying commensurate with what you paid for it? And this comes up with a... Uh, so I recently purchased a $650 drill. Weird flex, but um, okay. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, this was a part of the construction process I thought I was going to outsource. And so, for the foundation for the container house is uh, concrete slabs that have a 24-inch footing that goes around the perimeter. So, they're monolithic slabs where the the surface of the concrete is about six inches, but around the edges is about a 18 inch wide by 24 inch deep footing. So it kind of gets thick around the edges and goes down. So it's almost like a upside down box out of concrete. So to anchor the, we have to anchor the containers to the concrete so that it meets seismic uh, considerations. And to do that, we have to weld on these three quarter inch thick steel plates and then drill into the concrete 12 inches deep with a one-inch diameter hole, Um, and then epoxy in three-quarter-inch threaded rods that'll hold everything down. So that means for each corner of each container, I have to drill four one-foot deep holes, one-inch diameter. So we got to do eight because you have two plates on each corner, right? Well, it's, it's there's two in each one. So oh, I it's, thought there was two going down and two going into the foundation. The side ones, I only have to go in six inches. Oh, so I see. So those okay. aren't not as bad. But basically, I have to drill through, for each container, I have to <laughs> drill through about 16 feet of concrete. Right. Um, and I've drilled through concrete with my normal power tools uh, and like normal handheld, you know, hammer drill. And it's doable with like a quarter inch bit or a half inch bit, but it's really, really slow. So went to Home Depot and, you know, hey, you know, I'm in a good situation. I rarely pay for tools, um, but I was like, I need to buy something, you know, really heavy duty construction grade. So I was looking at the the Milwaukee uh, section because I've heard good things from, from contractors that, that use that brand. And I bought the their giant hammer drill. Um, hammer drill also just seems like something like a kid would make up. You're like, you know, he's holding a stick, and he's like, I'm like, what is that? And he's like, oh, it's a hammer drill. I can yeah. like, uh, it just seems like a weird, you know, Frankenstein sort of combination of things. So I got there, and I wanted a cordless one, so I don't have to hook up a generator. So it was 650 bucks for the drill, uh, one battery, and the charger. 
And then the drill bit I needed, which was like a 20 inch long, actually ended up getting both a one inch and a one and an eighth, just so I have a little more wiggle room to get the alignment right. The drill bits are like $60 each. And then I bought an extra battery, which is like 150 to 200 bucks. So I ended up spending like almost like $1,000 on this drill and its accessories. But when me and Mike tested it, we drilled through a about a three and a half inch slab of concrete, hardened five thousand psi concrete, in about thirty seconds. Yeah, with without pushing hard either. It was more just like putting a little bit of pressure, but really just letting the drill do the work. Right. So it's basically a drill and a jackhammer in one. You can also switch it to like just the hammering attachment. And there's part of the foundation where the formwork wasn't perfect. And so the steel brackets that had to wrap around it weren't hitting flush to the surface. And so I had to chisel away about a half inch of concrete. Oh, I just switched to a jackhammer attachment and just plowed right through that. It took about five minutes. Um, Whereas with a concrete saw or an angle grinder, I would have made... I would have filled up all the air with dust and it would have taken like hours and hours. So it's one of those things where I spent a ton of money, but if I would have hired or paid, it's one of those things where I spent a lot of money, but if I would have paid my contractor to do that, I would have spent over a thousand dollars on labor and now I get to keep the tool as well. And now that I have this thing that I can crack open giant rocks with, uh, it's changed the way I think about concrete projects, about this ability to, you know, you can put a hole saw attachment on this and drill three inch diameter holes through solid concrete. Yeah. We also drilled holes straight through a couple of stones, which yeah. made me excited because I feel like you need to do some kind of gate or some yeah. kind of totem pole where you just drill holes through the center of rocks and then stack them up through like a, with like a galvanized a pipe in the stone middle. Stone kebab. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, you could, you could totally cheat. You know how people do those like very zen-like rock oh, yeah, balancing yeah, yeah. things? <laughs> yeah, that's what Damn, I mean. Damn, how did yeah. you do that? <laughs> the smallest one on the bottom? That guy's amazing. <laughs> right. Uh, we can basically make rock donuts. Um, so it was one of the cases where I was really hesitant to, to make the purchase. But if I would have used the existing tools that I have, it would have taken me about four or five days and I would have gone through, probably burnt out the motor of, of a couple of the drills. Um, so it's one of those things where it felt like ridiculous paying that much for a drill. I mean, that drill costs more than the majority of tools that I use for an entire project. Um, um, that one drill is more than like the welding and all the metalworking tools that I use to like make like the lounge chair or the, the barbecue grill or stuff like that. Um, but in this case, you know, where you do need, it's a very industrial application. It was just a joy to use and really sped it up. So I thought the, uh, and conversely, um, you know, out here in Joshua Tree, I needed, I originally drilled the holes in the metal plates at just three quarters of an inch because that was the biggest metal drill bit that we had, um, which is the exact same size as the threaded rod, which means there's no wiggle and you have to be aligned perfectly, which is a disaster. So I went around, uh, Home Depot didn't have any of these nice drill bits that were over three quarters of an inch in diameter. So I went to our old friends at Harbor Freight. Oh, no. And I spent about $60 on a bunch of different drill bits. They were about seven eighths of an inch. I thought, okay, these drill bits are probably terrible, but they'll be good enough just to remount these holes and get them, a, you know, just an eighth of an inch bigger in diameter, right? Like the majority of the work's already done. It didn't do anything. These things just like... 
I got through like at you know a lot of these things to to drill and I maybe got through half of the first one before the drill bit was useless. Switched to the next bit. They had one of those stepped ones, which is supposed to be through drilling through through steel. That crapped out after the first one. And so it was an example where I paid very little. I bought like four drill bits for about 60 bucks, you know, big diameter drill bits, but they were all worthless. So it was a complete waste. There was nothing useful about it. So even though I got things for a cheap price, there was zero value in the purchase. Well, that is uh, a few podcasts ago. That's why I sweat, said I'm swearing off Harbor Freight, man. It's too, it's at the end of the day, whatever you, whatever you win on at Harbor Freight, you know, those items that end up being a good value, you lose because you've got to go through so many shitty things that it makes the good value things not worth just it break anymore. Even. When, it, when it all adds up. At the end of the day, you're breaking even. You might as well have just gone to Home Depot and gotten good things from the get-go. It's the truth. Unless there's a couple items. Unless you need moving blankets, really, really, really cheap clamps for something you need a lot of clamps of, or... Simple measuring tools like rulers and things. You know what? I bought a moving blanket there, and it's already got a tear in it. Damn thing. Wow. Never mind. <laughs> Cross you know them what? off Forget the everything list. I said. Forget everything from Home Depot. And I got a, a, a one-foot ruler there, and I measured it up against my tape measure, and it was eight inches. Not oh, such a... Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. I, I think, like, a... I like it. I, I don't do a lot of, like, uh, use a lot of mechanic tools, like socket wrenches mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Um, but I find that when I when I do need a specific socket size or I need to get some individual wrenches for, like, so let's say I lost, like, the wrench that goes with the router, I figure out the size and I just go and get a bunch of backups um, yeah. from there. It's great for stuff like that. Um, but for anything where you need a lot of, like, reliable technical performance. Um, so I guess the way I was thinking of value would be is, for me, I think of it primarily in relationship to time like my time is my most valuable thing um and so it's weird because if you if you look at what we're doing from a business standpoint uh, we're doing physical labor but we're not getting paid for that physical labor as much as that's just a necessary requirement for us to produce the content um so the you know you Anything that sort of saves my, you know, saves hours of time. Uh, so it's, it's not like when, I, when I'm paying my workers, I am paying them somewhere about 50 to, to $60 an hour for the construction workers, depending on their sort of skill level. So that's not, that's, that's, a, that's a good wage, but it's not t- terribly exorbitant. I value my time much higher than that. So uh, there's a, there's a, you know, if I was to think of myself as, and I sort of decided to do this part of the construction myself, uh, paying that, if I save five hours, you know, and I saved way more than that, the cost of the drill justifies itself easily. Now, the, the other thing that I think is really important is like reliability. Um, because every time I make a run to the store, it eats up, it doesn't take an hour, but it it eats up at least an hour block of time. Uh, um, and so that's another way to think of it is if I get like, you know, if I don't have to keep going back because something keeps breaking or I need more of it and I can reduce those number of trips uh, 
or particularly if it's something I need to order. I've, I've been talking to a new 3D printing company, and they're like, oh, we want to send you a printer, and we'll work out a deal. And I'm like, I will only do it if you send me two printers. Because if I spend the time to do the modeling and do that, I want to print both at once in case one of them fails, so I don't have to like start over from the beginning again. Yeah. Or if one of the printers has a jam or something like that, where it's like, okay, I could spend all day getting this printer working right again, or I can have this one printing while I'm figuring out what's wrong with the other one. Right. So if there's a project with like a timeline or if I'm trying to get a video out in a single week, I will overspend on redundancies just so I don't have like a single path for schedule failure that's all lined up around one tool and the parts of which I have to order online and wait at least three days for them to get there. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And whenever I think about value, there's also that sense of uh, like money in versus creativity out. So welding was one of the biggest value added versus costs for me uh, that, that I kind of figured out over the last year was you can pick up a welder for 250 bucks, you know, at Harbor Freight, which is good. There we go. I'll, I'll give Harbor Freight a kudos on their welder. Their welder is really good. Or you can pick up a Forney welder for a similar price. And for under $500, you can start working with metal. You know, you can have the welder, the angle grinder, and the, the necessary accessories. And you've just opened up a whole new world. You've opened up a whole new set of materials, a whole new set of, you know, uh, profiles to your projects. You can go so much thinner and so much more minimalist. And... And it's just a whole nother skill to add beyond that. So uh, I think welding as a concept practically is an incredible value whenever it's considered, yeah. when you consider it in that, in that, what do you, what would you say perspective? Here's a, qu- a question that kind of branches off the idea. So let's say you're talking to somebody who's like just getting into all this. They're going to buy a few tools. What would be the first tool where you would recommend like splurge on this one? A table saw, but I would I would come at it from a different route and just say don't necessarily splurge on anything, but just get a few good items instead of a whole a set of crappy, crappy items. Yeah, yeah, right. I would say you splurge on the things that you use the most often, and and go, but the value shouldn't be so much on power, but more on reliability, right? So if I it's the same way I'd advise someone to if they're someone was buying their first car, and I'd be like, "Oh, you have like a thirty or forty minute commute every day. Oh, get like a like a like a Toyota or a Honda or or something that's going to be just incredibly reliable that could just take the abuse and a lot of miles. Your zero to sixty time doesn't matter as much if it's something you're going to be using every day. So if it, if it's you know their first sort of tool, I would say get a drill. I would say don't get the absolute cheapest one. Get like a nice brushless one. You know, brand doesn't matter. Um, But spend, I would say, about like the 80 to sort of $100 range Mm -hmm. um, instead of like the 40 to $50 range. Uh, And a drill like that is something that you can, that every household pretty much, I think, needs and is going to be useful for a long time. Table saw, I agree with with what Mike was saying, is an interesting one because also like safety plays into such a consideration. So if you're really looking at getting into woodworking, I would say getting like, you know, going for something like a saw stop with has that sort of unicorn safety feature, uh, 
I, I don't think you can place enough value on your fingers. Um, I agree. The way I look at it when it comes to tools is anything with a blade, I think it's worth quote unquote splurging on. So I would, I agree with you, Ben, on the drills. Like a good drill is slightly noticeable compared to a more budget friendly drill. But I think the difference between a budget circular saw is going to be more noticeable from a uh, more expensive circular saw compared to drills. I think anything with a spinning blade versus just spinning attachments, I think that's where you should splurge. Yeah. Because like a cheap, a cheap angle grinder is great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but like what you're saying, a really good jigsaw is a lot better than a, than a budget yeah. jigsaw. Yeah. The... With the circular saws, I would say it, it, there's a bigger difference between the battery ones than there is between the cordless. Big time. Or the corded ones. Yeah, you're right. So any corded circular saw is going to be reasonably powerful enough to get something. I love – once – the first battery-powered circular saws I used were not great. Now they're phenomenal. Like the the brushless Ryobi one that I use, it's not that cheap. Uh, I think it's about like an 80 to to $100 tool. It's fantastic. I can do freehand, really accurate cuts, put a finished blade. Oh, there's a great sort of trade-off, right? I think for me, I get a lot of value out of mid-tier to to low-end power tools, but with like getting nice new blades for them Mm -hmm. um, is a great way to sort of split the difference and get good performance out of something that doesn't have a huge sticker price. The other thing I would say is don't commit to a brand and then buy uniformly all the way across like pick and choose your value so let's say clamps for example uh everyone always says about how you always need more clamps but there's a big performance difference between something i don't know like say maker brand clamps and harbor freight clamps that being said even though that's our company and i think our clamps are the best i wouldn't advise you know buying uh you know 20 of those you know T-bar clamps to do that. It, it would be too expensive. So what I recommend would be have a few of the good ones that can do a lot of different things and are really versatile that will last forever because there's only you're not going to be doing massive projects that need 50 clamps every right. week, yeah. right? So that, that's more of an expansion group. So the the most common thing is that you're going to need like you know two to four clamps. Mm-hmm. So get two to four of the really good ones and then backload for those really unusual scenarios with the less expensive ones to kind of supplement. So that way, 90% of the time you're using the good stuff and the rare times when you're doing a really big project where you need a, uh, a lot, you can use those ones in support. And that way you have a full range of capabilities in your shop, but you spent less on the things that happen less often. Yeah. You know, so I agree with, um, a lot of what you guys said, especially so like the kind of accuracy tools like saws versus drills, I think, yeah, it makes more sense to probably splurge on the things with blades uh, where, you know, there's safety and accuracy and all those things that come into play. But one that I'll throw my hat in the ring for that doesn't fall into that category would be a good random orbit sander. I think that's something that gets overlooked a lot. And like if you've used a crappy one versus using a good one, there's a big difference. And that's probably also the tool that in any given project, you'll probably spend the most time hands on with. Yeah, that's true. Like drilling, like, you know, if you just if you said how much cumulative time do you spend drilling on any project, you're like three minutes i don't know (laughs) sanding like you could do 45 minutes no problem sanding on a project yeah it's funny so the first sanders i used were quarter sheet sanders 
the mm-hmm. old school ones. And yeah, the square ones. I liked those just because I had a crap load of sanding paper that I'm like, I don't want to get rid of this. And so mm-hmm. I just kept getting quarter sheet sanders until I moved out to California and I started using Ben's random orbit sanders. And it changed the game completely. And that was even whenever I was just using the battery-powered random orbit sanders. It wasn't until... Mm-hmm. A couple months after that, that I started using plug-in random orbit sanders, which are even a whole step beyond that, just because they have so much more power. It's you know, it's the same thing as a battery-powered circular saw versus a plug-in circular saw. That's just got more yeah. juice. Yeah. For uh, another example, where I like to go more low end and high end is with angle grinders. I like having like four angle grinders, each with a different attachment, all set up and ready to go. So two battery ones and two corded ones. So the corded ones have like heavy grinding discs or flat discs um, because I'm going to really remove a lot of material and sculpt something down. And then the the corded ones have more uh, detail, like a wire brush, so I can get around. They're very mobile. I can get around and clean up any sort of angle and stuff like that. But I'd rather go with, you know, corded ones that are in the sort of $50 range, have two of those that are all set up with the right attachment, because that just saves the time and hassle of having to switch, take off the guard, take up, unscrew the nut, put the different attachment on, put it back together. Just being able to have those all on a cart and ready to go with whatever you need and just, you know, like a, like a doctor's tray, like scalpel, yeah. <laughs> you know. I guess something else to think about on the macro would just be when you look at the tool, like how many places are there for the manufacturer to mess up in making it so if you look at something like an angle grinder like you know there's a, a few pieces where th- there's not a whole lot to mess though, up on yeah. it it's pretty yeah, there's simple. gonna be like on the nicer ones like it's more powerful maybe there's a few extra like amenities that are built in there on a table saw there's like a million different pain points that they can mess up on so i guess that's something else to think about yeah and and, and the last thing i would say is uh Always take time to sort of reconsider uh, brands, right? So in the comment section, I'll get people saying, oh, this brand sucks, this brand sucks, this brand's great. But they don't really factor in like time, right? All these things change. There is a time, and I think I've used this analogy before, when like Japanese-made cars were considered really unreliable. That right. like Toyotas and Hondas, are, now they're... They're synonymous with reliability and like performance over a long period of time. So if you were to sort of have the conception that was 10 years too old, you're factually incorrect. Um, <laughs> and what, what I see is sort of ha- is happening is the companies that have scale, meaning that they have a lot of volume, are able to not necessarily use scale or volume to improve high-end performance, like zero to 60, but they're able to use it to improve reliability and durability. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's where like, where, where I sort of look at what's the low end of the market that has a lot of volume that's like that sort of you know, Toyota Corolla that you're going to get you know, 500,000 miles out of um, like that. But I don't want the sort of like, low-end, one-off brands that have no sort of permanence, which is what happens with like the, the $20 Harbor Freight uh, uh, angle grinder. I think another and one other thing that I'll bring up that has a very good added, or that has a really good value add versus the amount of creativity it enables are power carving discs. Because like we yes. were just saying, angle grinders are stupid cheap. You know, you can get them for 40, 60 bucks and they're really good. And then you can get a turbo plane or what was the other brand? Cutsaw. 
the yeah. one that made the abrasive type disc. Yeah. But you can get a good power carving disc for fifty to a hundred bucks as well, and then that opens up you know organic shapes to you. You know, rather than having to build geometric things out of out of wood, you can now start sculpting and carving. Yeah. The other thing is people think about accuracy as it relates to tools, right? So like, oh, I, I, I'm working with hardwood. I want these pieces to go together really cleanly because the material's expensive and I need a great saw or an expensive saw, like a fest tool or something in order to make accurate cuts. Well, the cut doesn't start with the saw. The cut starts with the pencil mark and the measuring, right? So if you're looking to, you know, if you don't have a big budget, get a really nice mechanical pencil and get a lot of extra lead because the thinness of that pencil and get a ruler that isn't like a chunky construction ruler. Get one that's like like one used for like architectural model making, which is, you know, has a real thin edge to it so it can get really close to the wood so there isn't a almost eighth of an inch difference between the mark that you're looking at on the top surface of the ruler and the wood that you're marking on. Get something that's like just laser thin right up to it and then use a, a mechanical pencil uh, you know, get the get the the square and those kind of things that will help you make right angle uh, drawings and lines on the wood that you'll then follow with the cut. So, those are things where, you know, getting the real ex, you know spending three or four dollars on the pencil and the lead instead of you know twenty five cents. If that improves your marking within a sixteenth of an inch or even a thirty second, that's a really low cost way to go to the high end of marking tools that will then sort of help improve your performance, even if you can't go all the way high end on the saw itself. Yeah, you kind of took the words out of my mouth. So um, if you guys follow me on Instagram, I I went to bat pretty hard for a one-time tool for woodpeckers this week. It's called the Pocket T-Square, which now it's it's a moot point because it ended yesterday. So if you're listening to this podcast, you can't even order it anymore. But (laughs) And I was, that was one of the reasons that I was so like, Hey, if like, you've been thinking about getting a woodpecker tool, like this is the one to jump in on. Cause you could get like the three inch one, I think it's like 30 bucks or something like that, which is, yeah, it's expensive for what it is when you compare it to other things, but like, it's so nice. And I use that thing constantly. Like it, it would be like the best $30 for someone like me, at least that you'll spend. Yeah. Cause you measure in every project you don't necessarily jigsaw in every project or something like right. that right so pick the thing that you use in every single project to kind of mm-hmm. splurge on a little bit yeah and and especially something like that that like you know there's there's no moving parts to it or anything so it's gonna oh, yeah. literally last as long as you don't lose it yeah and the the, the the last the last suggestion i'll make is one that's not the coolest or the most fun but is on safety um so RZ mask, not sponsor of this podcast, but you know, cheap dust masks. I just keep putting off wearing them because they're uncomfortable and they fog up the glasses. And if something compromises my visibility, if it's saving my lungs, it's putting the rest of me in danger because it's compromising visibility. So I can't recommend like RZ masks enough. They're one of those things that they're not that expensive. They're $30. They're reusable. You can get replacement filters. They'll pay for themselves over time versus disposable dust masks. And they're so much more comfortable and effective that uh, uh, you actually don't mind wearing them. Um, So I've been reading more about how particularly like uh, concrete is like really bad for your lungs because it never really (laughs) – your lungs have a hard time ever getting rid of it Mm. as as opposed to like – sawdust or organic material um 
So I'm trying to be more diligent about uh, uh, using uh, dust mess, particularly when working with like masonry type things. So those are things that aren't that much, um, that extra 30 bucks, but definitely, definitely worth it. And then always having extra safety glasses just everywhere. So that there's, so you're never, you don't have to make that decision. Oh, I have to go into this other room to find one and look for one. I, I buy so many safety glasses so that they're everywhere. So there's no excuse not to just pick it up and put it on. Exactly. So there we go. Be safe and buy things that are Valuable. good values. Exactly. <laughs> and if you want to come chat about safety. No. Uh, <laughs> yeah. If you want some good safety talk. But speaking of a good value. If you want to come hang out with us at WorkbenchCon, few tickets still left. I just heard that uh, some of the guys from uh, Making, Making it, it are going to be there. I know Jimmy is planning on going, and I think Bob is coming too um, to WorkbenchCon. So we're going to have a awesome crew. There's going to be lots of conversations about every sort of making topic. There'll be class sessions, and then there'll also just be a lot of informal hangout time, which, frankly, to me, is is, is the best part of it. Um, so that's coming up in February. Uh, me and Mike will be getting into Atlanta, where it's being held, uh, probably around like the 19th of February and staying till the 24th. Um, but just uh, check out WorkbenchCon. Just Google Workbench Conference or check out their Instagram page and get your tickets and come hang out with us. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. So links for that will be in the description as well. What are you guys obsessed with this week? Do you have any new mm. YouTube videos, content creators, <laughs> Netflix shows, magazines, books, audiobooks, or products that you've used lately? Uh, I've gotten recently really back into shoes for some reason. Nice. Okay, here we go. <laughs> here we go. Here comes some shoe talk. And actually, I have watched some YouTube videos about shoes. That's how into it I've gotten. Been watching some shoe reviews? Have you been watching some Brad shoe Hall videos? No. Oh, dang it. You know who Brad Hall is? I don't. Wait oh. on me. All right. Well, no, it's... <laughs> Brad Hall is like the nerdiest looking person in oh, the world. Oh, yeah, yeah, I have seen him. Yes. And he, he does I, like shoe reviews for like Yeezys and like just ve- like hype beast stuff. Yeah, he was on uh, Unbox Therapy one time when they, oh, they, yeah. they did like every pair of Jordans, like, yeah. you know, Jordan 1, Jordan 2. But uh, yeah, so I've, I've gotten back. I've always just loved shoes. I think from a design point of view, I really like them because, especially like if you look at basketball shoes or sneakers or whatever. You know, they're all 95% the same. So it's like, how do you like reimagine that over and over and over and like still make it interesting? So I think that appeals to me in a way. And especially like, you know, I've always loved the the retro Jordans that are like nostalgic to me growing up. Threes, fours, fives, all that stuff. Um, but even just looking at like a lot of modern shoes, it's just interesting like to see how they've changed. Um, in particular, so one thing I'll, I'll recommend people to go look at it's a Nike collaboration with a company called Fear of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they have these ones called shoot arounds. And then the other ones are just, I think they're just called the Fear of Gods. But they're very, there's like a lot of um, like the back to the future look in them where it's like, here's like the 80s version of 2019. Yeah. Like the really high top. Yeah. Yeah. But like in like in a very cut- like kind of plain minimal but like futuristic look to it it's weird yeah. so i don't know i i just i've been trying to take inspiration from them in a way and, and i think that's gotten me back into them and then also i was thinking about i just like needed a comfortable pair of shoes for standing in and i'm like i'm standing like eight hours a day and so 
I, I was just like, I'm going to buy some nice shoes for me to stand around in. So I got some Jordans. I'm standing in them. Wow. I was oh. about to say you were getting, you were going to get the fear of God shoes. No, was, no, those are too expensive to stand also, in. Also, I would love to see you wearing them, Chris. Dude, if I had them, I would wear them. Because they also are like moon boots to a certain extent. Like <laughs> yeah. they're really big. They're very, yeah, like bulky looking on the. Advertisements tell me that Skechers makes some very nice, comfortable standing around shoes for for men in your sort of age and family position, too. (laughs) Some dad shoes? (laughs) I'll make dad jokes, but I'm not ready for dad shoes. Good, good. He's gonna, you're going to be coming out in those Nike, uh, the like, uh, what are they called? I think they're called like the Mavericks or whatever. Uh-huh. <laughs> the yeah. like, or no, they're the Monarchs. Oh, the yeah, Monarch yeah, yeah. Airs. The classic white dad shoes. Yeah. Or they're like all like bulbous in the back heel. and Exactly. What about has. you, Ben? What, what are you obsessed with? Right now, it's with 360 cameras and over-capturing as a technique. Yeah. So the production company, uh, Bipolar, that did the the video and photo shoots for the container house which uh, Home Depot hired them to do uh, released the first teaser video of the container house so it's on the Home Depot Twitter account and I shared it on my Twitter and my Facebook it's not on Instagram yet it's not on YouTube yet so if you want to see the the tour of the home uh, check out my Facebook pages either the homemade modern or my personal one and or check out my my Twitter stream. They oh so what they do to sort of film this is it's really hard even if you have like a really nice gimbal to do to execute the perfect run through a really tiny house where you're showing all the features that you want. So instead what they did is they put a GoPro fusion camera which I'm going to get uh, on a gimbal and walked it through the house. So it's capturing everything on the path that they're walking in. Then in post, they can then, uh, since they have all the information all the way 360 degrees around the camera, they can then edit and define a very normal-looking video path for wherever they want. So they can go, okay, we're going to start by highlighting this cabinet, and then we're going to switch over to the microwave, and then to the sink, and then to this, and to this. So they don't have to perfectly execute the gimbal. They just have to capture everything, and then they can do this perfect fly-through that's on on point both time wise and content wise. So the result was it's it's a pretty incredible about 60 second walkthrough of the house and uh I think it's exactly what high end branded content should be like uh where it's it's interesting on its own but it's also really informative about the products that are making up the house. So I'm really fascinated by this sort of technique and particularly with like architectural size projects. I think that this mic is something we're going to have to get good at. I think so as well. It's really, yeah, that's what it is. It's impressive because you've got camera movement that is, was just inaccessible before, but it was something that you would see in computer, like CGI applications all the time, but you wouldn't see it in anything that was shot in real life. So you have this weird like confused thing that happens when you see overshot footage right now because it's not so common where it's like is this real is this cgi what's where's the line because it does really kind of blur it's awesome right. yeah and tying it into our conversation about bandersnatch how you know they gave you a lot of options old like traditional 360 videos i am not a big fan of because like, oh, yes, you can navigate, but there's really only one or two interesting things. Mm-hmm. This, I think, is such an interesting use of 360 technology because 
it's capturing everything not to give the consumer everything, but to give the content creator the ability to fine-tune and pick exactly what they want in a controlled way. Um, so it's it's using the 360 technology to give more options in post, not, not options to the consumer. Because that would be like shooting a raw photograph and then giving that to the consumer. Oh, and on your Instagram, you can pick however you want the video. No, no, no. Give me the finished edited thing. Don't yeah. give me a raw file. Uh, tell me how this photo is supposed to look. Yeah. And this is doing the same thing with motion and space. Yeah, it's really awesome. So shout out to GoPro and uh, shout out to 360 cameras all around. Way to go. Even though it was like, yeah, that's what it is. It's kind of cool. So like a traditional 3D camera or a 360 camera, I guess, is that middle technology that isn't quite useful enough to be mainstream, but it's what enables the next generation of that yeah. kind of idea. So it's cool. Um, my obsession this week, I've got two of them. One of them is the net, or it's a show on Netflix. It's a BBC produced show and it's called Borderline. It's not new. It didn't come out with a new season, but I just saw it on my Netflix suggestions recently. And it's good for any fans of The Office or a good workplace comedy. Check it out. It is essentially, you know, for, for lack of better terms, the same way the, the same way Parks and Recreation is The Office in a, in, for government jobs. Uh, borderline is the office for TSA or the British version of TSA. Mm-hmm. Um, get through the first episode and then they keep getting better. The first episode is like, it's got a little bit of the plot. That's, that's not so great, but it, it redeems itself throughout the season. And I think there's two of them now. So borderline is good. Check it out. The other obsession that I have is pieces for chain link fence i'm talking the posts the fittings basically everything but the chain link fence itself i'm really excited about because it's really cheap you can get substantial sized pipes and it has so many ready-made fittings that you can just kind of snap together and assemble things really well so just like we were talking about electrical conduit a few weeks ago how there's such a such a good value for the uh, for for the amount of material you're getting especially considering the strength of it gate fence posts and fittings are the same th- same way you can get a two and a half inch diameter post that's eight feet long for right around ten dollars maybe twelve dollars which to me is crazy because if you were to do the same thing out of copper pipe a 10 foot length of two and a half inch copper pipe is a couple hundred bucks. So look forward to a few projects with that coming up. Uh, I, I think the first thing I'll do with it is a conference table. So that's all I have on that. <laughs> awesome. So anyways, thanks guys for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. <laughs> Bringing, we're, leaving with, we're leaving with a full head of steam here <laughs> as my story just trails to nothing. Uh, if you're not so, already, you can follow so us. fence parts. Cool, Mike. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Jesus. All right. Well, whenever, that was I offensive. Make, whenever I make a really cool fence project, fence part project, I'm going to really gonna rub our it words. in. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> if you're not following us on Instagram already, you can find me. That's right. I'm, I'm shouting myself out first at Modern Builds. Then you can find Ben and Chris 
uh, if you look hard enough. We are collectively, (laughs) no, I'm joking, they're at Four Eyes Furniture and at Benjamin Ueda. Collectively, we are at Modern Maker Podcast. And if you want to find us uh, on Instagram for Maker Brand, that is just at Maker Brand Co. But more importantly, just go to MakerBrandCo.com. Check out the clamps that we mentioned before or grab a gallon or a quart of Simple Finish with wax if you're doing furniture projects. Um, It's a great one-step finish. You just apply it, let it set, wipe off the excess. If you want to do a couple coats for a little extra protection, we definitely recommend it. But it really couldn't be easier, and it looks amazing. Other than that, buy fence parts. And we'll see you next time on the Modern Maker Podcast. Bye, everybody. (laughs) See ya. Way to go, Chris. (laughs) Good stuff.